brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Hey there! We already know you like comics. Well, each week you can listen to the Dr. DC podcast hosted by me, producer Richard, and sitting across from me, the doctor himself. Hello. We talk about the weird and wonderful world of DC while fielding questions from listeners just like you. That's right. Every Wednesday on a different topic, we talk about the fun, crazy world of DC. Send your questions. You don't have to be an expert. We're here to guide you through it and to make it fun and to have a good time. That's right. Every Wednesday, wherever you find your podcast or on drdcpodcast.com or .ca. Adios. And talk about dicks once. (laughs) This is the Triple C Podcast. Talking all things comics, culture, and cosplay with Josh, Mari, Kevin, and Zach. Hello, hello, hello. Hello out there to everyone out there in listening land. It's your old pal Josh, here with another episode of the Triple C Podcast. Joined on my right by Cool Kevin, and joined on my left by Marvelous Mari. Uh, Zany Zach is not joining us this week. He needed a little break. Hey, life happens. We're in the middle of a pandemic, but you still got to adult. So it's just the three of us doing a little trip back in the way back machine to when it was just we three doing the podcast. Hey there, kids. Wow, you know, it feels like we've been, it's been the four of us more than it's been the three of us. Not not that that's any, you know, any sort of a bad thing. It's just so interesting the different uh, iterations that this podcast has gone through, even uh, with all of us on it. That was back in the salad days of our podcasting together. Salad days. Hmm. My favorite Mac DeMarco album. (laughs) Salad days. Et tu, Caesar, with chicken. With chicken. (laughs) <laughs> so how do we how do we transition from Caesar salads to Square Enix losing over sixty three million dollars on Marvel's The Avengers? Oh, that's I guess easy. I just did it. That's I, I got a good one. Just like Caesar getting stabbed, what was it, twenty seven times in the Senate in and everything? Uh, Square Enix basically just got royally stabbed with the biggest loss I've ever heard of for a video game company in the 21st century. Jeezy Pete's guys, you had the vision, you had the the way to go, and you basically tanked it. And Tank Girl didn't even I... have to do anything. 
See, okay, first of all, that's really funny because I read Tank Girl not that long ago, and I'm going to do it for a future reader review, but I had read it for when we did The Boys, and we never got around to that. So anyways, okay, uh, Square Enix. So I don't know about that, Josh, because here's the thing. It's already 10 years too late. <laughs> Just like that stupid Harry Potter MMO that I will probably check out, right? Like, this is just uh, too late. So I think they've made kind of a smart choice because now they're just hitting it as a freemium model. More people are going to check it out, right? If this was the $60 game and monthly subscription and whatever, at this point, people are like, okay, I'm kind of on to whatever my next thing is going to be at least this gives people the opportunity to check it out and then i am sure sure that they are going to make up that 63 million dollars in dlc in loot boxes in whatever opportunities that the freemium models somehow always manage to find ways to get their users to pay yeah, see, like, that's, the freemium actually is a hope. We had another another article that we were looking at, and basically the the uh, author of this article is positing that the phase that Marvel's Avengers is in right now, and I think the biggest issue was, uh, with it is that it was charged as uh, a full-price game for something that's essentially, like, a freemium games as, uh, as a service. Think, like, Genshin Impact. Think, uh, oh God, not like, like, The Division, Division 2. <clears throat> And, you know, there's just not enough replayable content. Um, so this other article we had, it basically a guy saying, you know, this, the, uh, who, who's the author on this one? This is from Heroic Hollywood. Uh, it's an article by uh, Raiden Scarnato. And it's kind of funny what he was saying here. They're like, whenever I like a game, it basically stands no chance, right? Rocket League, uh, you know, this, that, and the other, Anthem, they always eventually go to freemium. And now Marvel's Avengers is at the stage before it goes freemium where they're just giving people a ton, like tons and tons of content, essentially as an apology for how badly the game has been rolled out and serviced. So I guess to that end, do you think it should go freemium considering like they're really, we really don't know if it actually will. I think it should. I think it is screwed unless it, it doesn't. Oh, absolutely. This freemium, they have no other options. They can try, they can blindly stumble forward as other people have, a, have done in the past. But if they do that, they're basically just putting more nails in the coffin for a huger a much larger sorry grammar error right there a much larger loss in quarterly speaking i am however excited that we're gonna get to have the unlockable dlcs of being able to play as spider-man hawkeye black panther and other marvel characters because i i did uh i watched gameplay i didn't buy the game but getting to play as the avengers for this game seemed like a lot of fun however to get to play as other heroes does seem enjoyable. I've always been partial to Hawkeye, so I'd love to see what they do with Clint. So yeah. one of the things that is interesting to me about this is how much they are setting the groundwork for you know the next phase of the Marvel Universe, right? So bring it out now in this sort of down period, lull period, put it out there for free, give your users that like first little taste of the game uh, while it's still free. And then as the next series of movies start to come out and they start, like you mentioned, introducing new characters, uh, that's when they're really going to start putting the squeeze on for, you know, 
no free lunches. <laughs> free lunches don't exist anyways. You know, no, sir. you know what else doesn't you know what else doesn't exist? The ability to have backwards compatibility for the PS5, to which I say very nicely, PlayStation, I hate you. You have literally destroyed any reason I had to buy your latest shiny toy. Instead, I will just go and stick with my my PlayStation 4 that does have backwards compatibility. Yeah, so the PS5 won't, as we mentioned, won't have backwards compatibility for PS3, PS2, or PS1. Uh, but I, I suppose that doesn't necessarily mean that you can't play these games on the system uh, unless you have a PlayStation Now subscription. So this is essentially PlayStation's equivalent to the Xbox Game Pass. You pay a monthly fee, the games rotate in and out. But a lot of them are not great games, I guess. They're definitely... There are titles from the PS1, 2, and 3. Some of them are good, but definitely we're talking about game game arch- archivism here, right? Like, if I want to get this previous or this, this, this brand new system, you know, ultimately it is about how it's going to perform. Is it, You know, it shouldn't necessarily be an emulator, but I think to make your thing the full package, right, to, to show that you are honoring that history that isn't just one generation behind because the PS5 backwards compatibility is like completely optimized for PS4. 99% of PS4 games are going to be on the PS5, but that just means that your PS3 or 2 or 1 are now, you know, that's that's going to be... It's, PS3s are going to be a major legacy buy just for their ability to play PS2, just like how the Wii can play GameCube games, but GameCubes are really difficult to come by. Uh, so I don't know. I, I wish companies would focus more on archiving their past in the similar way that Nintendo does, uh, in a way, because oh, this stuff is interesting. And we see that these games, this information, this data, this media, it, it isn't permanent. Flash is going away and every fun Flash game that you've ever played is, is going to disappear. You know what I mean? So it's, it's imp- to me, it's important to have that as part of a philosophy when you're creating a game console consider continuity but then again i'm a big comic geek so of course i'm going to say that but i don't know yeah. that, I, I understand that that's not a, a, a selling point for a lot of people you know you just want to play the, the latest nba 2k with the best graphics possible so do you guys feel the same way you know i have really moved away from physical games Part of it is that we don't have a console at the moment, right? Everybody's following me on this journey. Um, But even then, even before that, when we did, we had our PlayStation, we were mostly playing downloadable. And I mostly play online, right? So most of my games, I get off of Steam, right? Everything's on my PC. So, you know, it's very interesting for me because if and when we do get a PS, I don't have a backlog of them to be honest. So uh, this this really doesn't affect me too much. It's so interesting because like my especially my older PlayStation games, they all got kind of like passed along to the next generation. So my brother got most of them and now our younger brother has a lot of them, cousins. You know what I mean like that sort of stuff just never I'm not a collector of those sort of things. So for me this is not this is not going to make influence my decisions one way or the other i see where you're i see sorry um i see where you're coming with with on this mari i guess it's different for me because 
for the longest time it was just me and Zach and yeah we have our uh, our direct cousins um, and everything and they're all in one way or another interested in gaming but and even then games in our house my Zach and I we didn't have PlayStation or PlayStation 2 until we were both in high school like the first video game systems we both had were uh, Game Boy Advance SDs and that, that's even a throwback right there so I'm more mad because I have played so many different games from the different systems over the years that not being able to you know, go buy some of the classics and play them bums me out because I'm actually the total opposite. I'm not an online gamer. As much as I enjoy getting stuff from Steam, which even then my Steam account is so piddly it's not even funny, I'm all about getting down in the basement, maybe having some snacks, getting the TV fired up, picking my favorite game or a game that I'm still working on. Like, I'm, st- I'm still working on Assassin's Creed Odyssey. I, am, I have not yet begun to murder my way through the ancient <laughs> Greek world, people. And I just, I like the physicality of it all. I like the comfort level, and I also like not being able, not having to, like, somehow shrink my hands down to otter paws to play games on my laptop. I like the, I like having a full-handed <laughs> game experience. You know, I don't want to be an adorable little otter at SeaWorld. I do otter paw sometimes. Yeah. I like that. I do otter paw. Yeah, I mean, if unless I'm somehow going to get to be an like otter. My belly and everything. <laughs> I mean, like, honestly, if, if unless you tell me that there's a universe where I'm an otter, where we're all sentient otter people, that's awesome. But I don't want to emulate my otter self playing games on my laptop. If I want to get my game on, I'm going to go fire up the PS4. I'm going to go fire up my Xbox 360. And that's that. Otter me can just go do otter things, you know, flap its tail. I really would like to play an otter-based game now where we can just, like, you know, slide down some tree trunks into the river and <laughs> lay on our belly and hold hands with our little otter mates. Honestly, I, mean, I just... It feels like a you thing. Uh, Simulators but... are really popular. I'm sure Otter Sim 2021 is going to be coming oh my pretty gosh. soon. <laughs> if, that is act- if that is actually a thing, I will just squeeze so much. I am a huge, I am a big fan of otters. When the world resumes normalcy, I'm going to find an otter experience so I can play with otters. I'm so, not sorry. I-, I want otters. So I guess my my question, and that I'm posing to uh, to you listening now, is that is this is this a major deal breaker is this any sort of a selling point for you do you think game archivism is important at all or do you do you think that just whatever comes out now is is you know what what's now is now definitely let us know uh, on our on our twitter at the triple c podcast we'd love to hear uh, what what you think about all this any of the topics that we talk about on on any of our shows feel free to reach out to us so next topic right gamestop gamestop we talk about <laughs> quite a bit here uh so Imagine you're a GameStop employee, right? You know, you, you've uh, been okay. I'm imagining I'm a GameStop employee, <laughs> and I'm wondering what the crap did I do in a past life to get stuck working at this place? Right. So after you're wondering about the nature of your own karma in this life and previous ones, uh, you may be wondering. You, know, you may be getting your Black Friday plans together. Am I going to work? Am I not? Well, GameStop ha- uh, had a contest recently, right? It's a TikTok competition, and basically all of the different managers and the different chains roped their employees together to do a dorky little dance, 
and uh, for fabulous prizes, including an Echo 8, an Echo Auto, a $100 Visa gift card, and 10 additional labor hours to use during Black Friday during a pandemic. So, I mean, if it were up to me, I would take the gift card, but that's just me. Maybe I'm a crazy person. I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know why they thought that this was a good idea. And like, I'm uh, wondering, I'm wondering if the wording is wrong. If it's ten extra hours, like ten uh, extra vacation hours, ten labor hours, it just says ten additional hours for Black Friday. That's Whatever a, that means. Yeah, the wording right there is very nebulous and leaves a lot for uh, negative interpretation. But if it turns out that that is GameStop actually saying, yeah, one of the prizes somebody's won is that they don't get to shop till they drop on Black Friday. They have to work on Black Friday. To which I say, GameStop, you've already dug yourself into a hole by stupidly trying to claim that you were an essential business in various parts of the country during the pandemic. You've already loaded the gun. This is just putting the barrel in your mouth and begging somebody who works for you to pull the freaking trigger already. At which point, I would gladly say, pull the trigger already! Pull the freaking trigger already, GameStop! Nobody loves you anymore! You're on the bone pile! I'll be I at am, Best Pie. I am genuinely surprised. Like, considering the smack that we were talking about GameStop at this time last year, I am surprised that they've managed to just claw their way you know, still out of the market. But I have so much giggles just thinking about the, like, marketing meeting or whatever that happened where they came up with this idea. You know what I mean? They're like, listen, you know that thing that all the kids are talking about, that that TikToks? Um, we need to get on that, but it's, like, really expensive to buy advertising. So we need to go viral. Um, so how about we make our monkeys dance and then, and then, I don't know, your store of eight employees can, what, share an Amazon Echo? Like... The, the Echo's ooh, for the store. Like, exactly! Exactly! It's even, <laughs> I just, and they're sitting up there just like, we are such generous gods. <laughs> right? This ten hours, I have worked retail Black Friday. There is regardless of how you read that 10 hours there is no good version of that you don't get time and a half as a as a store associate for working black friday there's no like hey this is awesome we're giving you extra money this is yes this is your store will be allocated an additional 10 hours to relieve you from the nightmare that is black friday consumerism zombies like it is just ah GameStop, I will eat your ruin for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yum, 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 yum. Ooh. Yum, yum, yum. That, Mari, they that did was cancel, better than mine. They did uh, remove the competition after, I'm sure, enough backlash. Um, this, was on, this was on the 4th. But I just how... I, I just really want to see into the minds of the upper echelons at, at, at GameStop. Just... They're just addicted to screwing up. I don't know how. Just uh, I have a, I have a theory. They even though the new guy, the new person, the uh, new gentleman uh, who's in charge, wants to definitely try to make GameStop better. I applaud anybody who wants to actually turn around a business. 
I have a theory he is still surrounded with the sycophants and yes people of the previous uh, uh, epoch, and that's not helping in terms of actual productive idea generation on how to make GameStop such as it is a somehow enduring part of the video game consumer market, which I would like to point out, I have not actively shopped in a GameStop in a very long time. I also am not much of a gamer to begin with. If I'm going to get my game on, I'm just going to go to Target or Best Buy or Walmart or and, and, and buy some games from there. Why? Because it actually means I can see a video game section, not go into a store that has maybe a few walls, a, a, a wall and a half of new stuff, some stuff behind the counter, a couple walls of older games, and then mostly way too overpriced merchandise that I can get for cheaper at any local comic book store or you know hot topic or wherever or even cheaper from say like Amazon of all places that's right even cheaper from Amazon I went there people I actually would give Bezos my money at that point all GameStop did was not promote my brother, and I swear to God, it has changed the way I have interacted with video games for, like, 20 years at this point. It's so amazing. Like, listen, it's so amazing what just that personal... As soon as, like, someone well-known does something screwed up to someone you know, that's it. Like, I don't care how good Chris Claremont is... I'm never going to read a single book. Oh, are, you, are, are you still no. on that just because he made a crack about my teeth? I don't care. I got insulted by Chris Claremont. If I'd gotten told I was butt ugly by mm. Carl Urban, I'd have said, well, thank you. This means I need to work on my self-image some more. Carl but, Urban would never say no. that. Don't you dare put that in his mouth. <laughs> no, you're right. I'd rather just give him an apple and say, you want to get a coffee, Carl? Roll at night. Yeah, but okay, dude, don't be like that. Claremont gave us what 14, 15 years of amazing X Men stuff. Just because he made one crack about my dental hygiene, to which that's I, all, I that's all it takes. That's I all it takes. I don't care. I got insulted by one of the most brilliant writers still living from two generations of comics. He's the reason we have the Phoenix arc. He's the reason we have Days of Future Past. Hell, he's the reason we have Storm, Colossus, and Wolverine on the X Men. Love him for that. If anything else, I, I mean, I'm still not going to read any any Claremont. If Dude. you were to like, even if like if you would have said that about any any if any comic writer or celebrity or anything says you know something deliberate like that about someone I know, you know, it's just for me, it, it, it's it becomes like more of a personal thing, I guess, like more of a personal value thing. I don't know. It's Mario, not I mean, like he stabbed me and kicked me to the ground and spit on my comics. The dude just made a wisecrack. I'm sorry. Listen. Maybe I'm looking at this the wrong way, but I'm still a little starry-eyed that I got dissed by one of my favorite X-Men writers. Listen, we can all... You are you are well entitled to, to your feelings, and you don't have to be uh, offended by it, right? To Kevin's point... Um, I am sort of that way, right? Like it's with half of these actors or creators or producers, you know, what when we hear about the character of the person, it changes how I see them. Like it just changes everything about it. It really does put a taint on on it that makes it hard for me to go back and enjoy, right? Like one of the one of the things that I really appreciated that my friend said to me was, you know, like with all the 
just nonsense that J.K. Rowling has been doing in the last couple of years and stuff like that. You know, they were like, listen, Harry Potter doesn't belong to her anymore. It belongs to its fans. Um, and yes, I know that's a little read another book and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, yes, Kevin, I'm, I'm kind of with you, it, especially when it's personal. Once, once it changes how I feel about something, someone, it, it's very, very hard for me to go back to. Trust is a thing that you can almost never get back from me. Well, mm-hmm. thank you, guys. That's very sweet, and I appreciate that. If you want to hate on Claremont, that's fine, but at the very least, don't not go read some of the stuff he did for X-Men, because in those years he did write for X-Men, he did do a lot of really great stuff. Listen, we care about you enough to say screw Claremont. <laughs> I care you enough know, about I myself to say... <laughs> I mean, I care enough about myself to say, okay, fine, I'm going to just keep reading X-Men in general. I do tend to go a lot more towards Claremont because of the volume of work he did. He also did give us Excalibur, and I love Captain Britain, so I'm sorry. I want an Excalibur movie. I want to see Captain Britain team up with Nightcrawler and Kitty and, uh, uh, um, oh, crud. Rachel, Rachel Gray? I mean, that would just be awesome. And you know I what? feel like you... I, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, sidebar. This isn't on the show plan, but obviously we're, we tend to go off the book here. Really quickly, who would either of you cast as Brian Braddock? Who would you cast as Captain Britain for the MCU? Hmm. I so already have mine. Per- I already. I already have mine. Henry Cavill. Sorry. Henry Cavill. Sorry. My immediate reaction was Colin. Was Colin Firth? Because <laughs> maybe twenty years not- ago. Yes, yes, yes. That's the world that I I inhabit. So that's who I would like to nominate is Colin Firth from twenty years ago, <laughs> or or Hugh Grant from twenty years. Ooh. Either you know what, Brid- the 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 leading stars of Bridget Jones's Diary from twenty years ago. Oh, that is why we no, no, no. I just thought of it. Uh, Mid nineties Kenneth Branagh when he was still at the height uh-huh. of his Shakespearean oh, game, and yes. even though he was shirtless for half of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. I still don't understand that. Why was he shirtless half the time in that movie? We get it. You were cut. I'd rather just watch, I'd rather just go see more, I want more of you and De Niro. If I'm not going to get that, then I'm just going to go watch, you know, Boris Karloff. Uh, Honestly, just just cast Carl Urban as as everyone. But the thing is, the thing is, I mean, okay, yes, I would love Carl Urban, but you also do need, because Captain Britain is a very tall character and a very well-built character, just go get the biggest nerd in all of England, Henry Cavill. The dude's already a a self-proclaimed WoW player. Might as well just stick him in a costume that's got the Union Jack on it. Or, I feel like, or do his yeah, do his Gen One costume, which was the red, which was the red costume with the uh, gold lion on it and the full face mask. I feel like you okay. pull it off. Okay, I I might still be ten years. Maybe I'm just now ten years behind, if not twenty years behind. But what about? Oh, I always butcher his last name. Richard Aoti from the IT Crowd. Oh yeah, okay. I could see that. That'd be good. I, I'm I'm down with that. I'm I'm down with. Uh, uh, I smell what you're cooking in the stew pot, and it smells delicious. I'm I'm down with that. This is, right. This is a little bit rough. I'm trying to think of like who are modern day British actors that I can put into this. I I feel like all of my cultural references at this point revolve around whatever I can pull up on BBC America, which is not much. Okay, nope, that is completely fair. Uh, however, I'm going to just quickly drop these into uh, Discord 
for you guys to take a look at. And you know what? I'm also going to throw this up on our social media. Which Captain Britain costume would, if they were going to make a Captain Britain movie, you guys want to see? The Gen 1 version, which was the red unitard with the battle staff and the gold lion, or the Gen 2, which is the one we've had for years where he basically, you know, is wearing a bodysuit and helmet with the Union Jack on it. I feel like they would do Gen 1 as like a draft and then be like, mm, tut tut, and then go with the, the new one for uh, for most of it. See, I'm also thinking about how would that movie play in markets like India because of the colonial imperialism mm. aspect. The, the Gen 1 costume feels less uh, imperi- uh, pseudo-colonial imperialistic. I mean, it, it's Captain Britain, you know what I mean? Like, if you're marketing Captain Britain in, you know, in any of the countries that, that have been viciously colonialized then you know it's kind of what you're going in for i feel like at that point it doesn't the 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 suit doesn't matter as much uh but you know we're talking about claremont we're talking about some of the cutting edges of the comic book world and um we we found something recently which in the world of comics i i've only heard of maybe once or twice if that and that is a podcast uh, getting adapted into comic form. So the sci-fi dramedy podcast bubble, this is from podcast studio Maximum Fun, is going to be publishing a comic book adaptation of their eight-episode podcast in 2021. So the basic premise of this, and it seems pretty pretty fun, it's sort of like mix Preacher and Portlandia, I guess, sort of, kind of. Essentially, you have... Uh, this town that essentially is like a, like a mo- like a modern town. It's it is very much like <laughs> like a Portland sort of sort of situation. Uh, this corporation has bu- has put a, a dome around it and separated it off from the rest of the country. Uh, the rest of the country is like a post-apocalyptic wasteland ruled by mutants and creatures called imps. And uh, our main character essentially hunts these imps, uh, and then a new like essentially uber for monster hunting pops up and it's kind of about how they get involved with the monster hunting gig economy in this in this world um so it says they have like there's there's like a an evil talking hipster mustache and book club's worst nightmare so i mean you know if you're into like that portlandia sort of humor this definitely seems like it would be up your alley uh, let's see. In terms of the the writers on the title, we've got Sarah Morgan and Tony Cliff as well, and then Marcus Brigstock, uh, who is a legendary British comedy writer. So it looks like we do have a lot of good talent uh, adapting this. I, I am a little bit unfamiliar with this podcast, but I definitely want to give it a listen just in, in preparation. But it's interesting when the co- when the comic book source material is a podcast, you know what I mean? Like, you know, go back, read the book, then read the comic, then read, then watch the movie. But it's just interesting to see a concept uh, develop along this path. Talking about that, there is one and that already I'm familiar with, the Dakota Ring Theater, which I know I've talked about before on the show. They're a Canadian podcast group founded by a gentleman who I can call a very dear friend at this point, Greg Taylor. It is essentially they do shows based on classic radio dramas. So they've they've been around since 2005, So and they're still kicking to this day. And, and, th- and this is going back to when, you know, podcast was a brand new buzzword in like 2005, people. So we're going way back in the Wayback Machine for the history of podcasting. So they have two main shows. 
Bla- Blackjack Justice, which is a noir detective style program, and the Red Panda Adventures, which is a superhero style series that is both are really fun, honestly. But because I do love superheroes, I always did appreciate the Red Panda more, especially because it was a linear story arc. It took place. It's uh, it's set in Toronto in the Depression era and goes through to the end of World War II with its main characters, the Red Panda and the Flying Squirrel. And they did actually adapt it into two different comic series published by Monkey Brain Comics, and then the physical copies were put out by Image. So I would recommend to both of you, go check out Dakota Ring Theater, listen to their stuff. It is just music for the ears. It is theater of the mind, 21st century style. And then go check out some of the uh, work that Greg has put out just to keep building the brand. He's written adventure novels and, for Red Panda, two spinoff comic series. I I do think it is really cool how, to Kevin's point, there is so much different ways these days to, like, be creative and be a creator, right? And, like, how things... It isn't just sort of a traditional path anymore. It's not like write a book, option it into a movie, you know? Things start in different ways. They start as comics. They start as podcasts. They start as fan art. Oh, my God, they start as fan fiction, looking at you, Fifty Shades of Grey. So I do think it's, do think it's very interesting how how we see these things change. I love the premise of this um, with the Hunter app. It kind of reminds me a little bit of what they were doing in uh, Westworld Season 3 with their, yeah. like, you know, small mm. crime app. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do, like, this, especially if the humor of it with the Portland, I can really see this, like, hitting. I'm going to definitely check this out. But I do have a question. What makes this a podcast and not like a radio play or like a radio drama? I can answer that just based. Uh, I'm not trying to step on anyone's toes here, but as somebody who ha- has been involved, who has been involved in the radio industry and also loves radio drama, especially the stuff from the Depression era and World War II, even though it's being put out as a podcast, its format is still the same as you would have gotten with. Amos and Andy with The Shadow and Green Hornet, Miss Brooks, and all of the story format programs that were popular when our grandparents were growing up. So even though it's being put out on the internet, it's still written and scripted and put together the way you would have an old school radio drama. The difference being that whereas with those radio dramas, you'd probably get what, like a day to rehearse and then you'd go live the next day. And if you made a mistake on air, it was out there live for all of the world to listen to with these you can clean it up and make it smooth you unless you're doing an improv style podcast like the one felicia day does voyage to the stars which is you get your premise and then the rest of it is just you know second city riffing style improv so there is a there that that, i'm sorry for the long explanation but there is a lot to unpack with that and yeah, it is confusing at first because when I first started to discover story podcasts like this, I was like, okay, so wait, they're calling it a, dr- a story drama, but it's being put out on the internet. I, 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 am I missing something here? And then when you actually start to think about, okay, they're putting this together the way you would put together a movie or a TV show. They're writing a script. They're picking a cast. If you're doing, say, a format, uh, a long story format series, or if you're doing like, I don't know, a showcase style, then you've got to do that, and then you also have to put together your rehearsal times, and then edit, cut it together, record it, edit, put in your music. So 
The difference between this and li- and the way live radio used to be is that instead of having everything in a studio at once and it's happening there and now and for all of America and the world to listen to, it's you can polish it. You can make that carbuncle as shiny as the day that Sherlock Holmes cut it out of the goose. There's a throwback for you, kids. And hopefully with with uh, programs like The Sandman, which was oh. absolutely a stellar piece of artwork, and that's just 100% audio drama. I mean, you close your eyes and you're there. Like, I can definitely see why such a thing is becoming more and more popular now, you know, with, with the internet and accessibility, et cetera, et cetera. I, but I could definitely see this coming back more so. You know what I mean? Like, I, I feel like... I would- company yeah like marvel and dc doing more uh, official things like this well i was gonna say it never really left i'm not arguing with you i'm just saying if you dig into the history of podcasting as far as putting out this kind of content it never really died it just took the big companies that have this well-known ip to get on the bandwagon and i'm not dissing that by the way i'm ex i i Oh, I have probably listened to the Sandman Audible adaptation since it came out in July. If I were to clock my t- my time listening to that whole thing all the way through, I've probably listened to it 30 times over the last few months. Why? Because it's just that good. I didn't know how much I wanted James McAvoy as Morpheus until it happened. Cat Dennings as Death. Taron Edgerton as John Constantine. Oh, gosh, I feel like I just betrayed Matt Ryan. Matt, I'm sorry. Don't hate me, man. I love you, buddy. The the one true John Constant. We all know Keanu's the one true John You hush your mouth. He's, ni- <laughs> he's neither a Brit nor a blonde. That's Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan is a true blue Brit, and, he's a, and he looks good blonde as he does brunette. So, you know, it's really nice that podcast – like, that – things like Bubble can have these avenues to see success uh, in, in all of these different ways, and that if you put something out there, you can do it any way you want, and really you have a, a strong chance of something happening as long as you're keeping with it. Uh, and I really like seeing companies like DC choosing to open up more and giving their creators more creative control over the stories that they can tell. Uh, And we're getting a sense of this, uh, especially coming in 2021 with the teasing of the DC Omniverse, right? So this is essentially the concept of it. Think of it as like the multi multiverse or hyper time or what have you. Every DC story, every timeline, everything happens somewhere there's an earth somewhere with the stories that you like they're right where they're what right where they're at and it sounds like dc is going to allow writers to write any sort of story and any sort of continuity but this also sounds like the dcu that's dcyou initiative that they uh, committed to in 2015 it's basically the same thing and that completely flopped so I'm wondering, I mean, what do you guys think about this? This idea of obliterating continuity, letting writers kind of handle their own bubbles. I mean, is that something that, that you think matters? Do you think that we should still maintain continuity within you know, DC Comics and these long-running comic companies? I love it. <laughs> I love it, actually. I'm, I'm, I can't believe I'm going to say this after the past like eight months of DC nonsense, but like I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic for this. You know, I, I feel like they have gone to the ends of the earth to like gymnastics their way into certain storylines and the con- you know continuity errors and uh, the 
but 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 you know this would you know as the article pointed out really kind of get rid of that idea of like elseworlds right so kevin like you know this was something that i was like you know i know that that's something you really enjoy and that idea of going against the grain but to me this is just an opportunity for risk taking for for interesting storytelling for for new voices you know taking over these stories and these characters and and you know picking up these toys and playing with them in a way that you know they previously have not been allowed to do so kind of following following up on what you're saying it sounds like this whole thing and this is going to be after future state whatever future state is going to be uh, it, it sounds like it's trying to cr- like create a framing device, like an, a justification for itself. Uh, and it sounds like what this is, is it's going to make everything Elseworlds, right? Every sort of story, more focus on like we're seeing with Tom Taylor with the Injustice and Deceased universes, like we're seeing with Sean Murphy with the White Knight universes. These guys handle their own pocket universes that pick and choose and already pulls from different stories and continuities and half the fun is going into the story and saying okay well what inspiration is he pulling from and having that be an extra layer of of analysis for these stories but you're gonna ultimately if you're doing like a bunch of side universes and letting those stories run you're gonna run into the same problem that marvel did with the ultimate universe and that the side universes are going to have their own continuities then afterwards you know you tell a story for long enough you have to make sense of how everything fits together and fitting everything together is the problem of continuity because 80 years of dc comics is just a bunch of handoffs between creators you know what I mean? For 80 years. And that's difficult to create any sort of cohesion in. So if they're going to do this, you know, you got to really make sure that the stories you're telling are tight and you avoid having multiple continuity problems branching out of this. See, I agree with both of you. And normally somebody would look at me and probably go, <laughs> dude, pick a side. But no, 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 hear me out. Mari, on the one hand, you made an excellent point. The creative freedom that this allows people to do is astronomical. You brought up Elseworlds. I am a huge Elseworlds fan. I've got like maybe 15 of of the old Elseworlds in my bookshelf. You know, like the way they were originally printed in those nice single book formats. I love those things. They gave people so much creative freedom when they were huge in the 90s and 2000s. Red Sun, Gotham by Midnight, Justice Riders. So, I mean, okay, Justice Riders alone, you think that would be goofy, but it's the Justice League set in the Old West. Okay, they already did it once on Justice League Unlimited with... John Stewart, Diana, and Bruce being cowboys with Jonah Hex. That worked. This worked too, people. Come on. But on the other hand, Kevin, you do make a point. Continuity is something that can happen even if you don't want it to. You're right. Continuity can happen to you. Yes. You least expect it. Yes, and that that and I was going to say continuity with certain characters you you need because of how it works with them and. Okay, fine. Roll your eyes, groan when, oh boy, Josh is going to talk about the Justice Society of America and pe- America again, people. But l- think about it. They are a team that is built on continuity. 
whether it's the stuff that is backtracking all the way to the Golden Age when they were originally published, or the stuff that was built upon with, say, Roy Thomas and Infinity Inc. and All-Star Squadron, or Jeff Johns with his run on JSA in the 2000s leading up to the New 52. Continuity for that kind of group you need because it is a legacy team. It's not like the Justice League or the Avengers where you can constantly have a rotation of different members. The JSA is built not just on the new blood, on Power Girl and Cyclone and Atom Smasher and Star Girl and and what have you. You have Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, Ted Grant and Carter Hall. You have your elder statesmen because they have been doing this since the days of the Second World War and the Depression. So with a team like the JSA, you need continuity because it's how it already has been for 80 years. And it's not me trying to say, oh, oh, it's just because I love the JSA, but it's because that's how it's structured. You know, with Batman, you can get away with a lot more because he has not actually changed that much in 80 years as far as his age goes. Bruce has remained the same ageless late 30s, early 40s since, you know, the Great Depression when he first showed up in Detective 27 in 1938. He has not actively aged outside of Elseworlds and spin-off tales like Dark Knight Returns. Same with Wonder Woman. You're talking about a character who has quite literally remained ageless because of the nature of who she is. She is the daughter of the Queen of the Amazons. You know, whether she was sculpted from clay and breathed life into her by the by, by Athena and Aphrodite and the Pantheon, or she's the daughter of Hippolyta and Zeus. That, she don't age. Clark? Clark has remained the same Boy Scout age since the, since 19, since the 1930s. The only time you ever get him to age is Kingdom Come or uh, DC One Million. And even then, he was living in the sun for millions of years, people. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering if, if this would like if, if I don't think this will fracture the fan base. But when you think of characters like Superman, you think of characters like Batman, the the canon of these characters is ultimately a collection of a bunch of different stories that people liked, felt fit with the mythology. And then that is ultimately passed down, you know, Nightfall, all the 30s, uh, 30s stories, Death in the Family, all of these are made at separate times but they're still in the incorporation of this one character so i'm wondering if you obliterate continuity you have these separate universes hell even do a, a multiversity uh imprint and then just have a bunch of stories uh, focusing on the different universes when do we come back together you know what i mean is like everyone it, will everyone just kind of sit in the you know in the deceased universe or the, the white knight universe that they like and and you know there isn't a, a cohesive canon i don't know it's like on the one hand i like no i love the creative freedom that this is offering to creators but i'm wondering when does it come back together you know what i mean like if there are all these different superman superman who is superman i guess and is that even something that you can tell in the story is that superman is the common conception of all of these different alternate supermen and all the significance of the stories that are told from their stories and that ultimately funnels up to this overarching idea of who Superman is, and you don't necessarily need canon for that to be the case. You know what I mean? And the last thing I'll say, you know, canon can... It's it's a discussion, such as the case with Three Jokers by Jeff Johns and uh, Jason Fabek, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but a big question of that is whether or not uh, that is canon. But before we go into that, before we, we 
you know, dive into the meat and potatoes of that. Josh, you have a, a really incredible interview with, with someone who I didn't think you'd ever be, not, not that you'd be able to speak with, but that we would get on the show. Uh, you spoke with Gary K. Wolf, author of Who Censored Roger Rabbit, of course, the uh, inspiration for the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Had a really nice conversation with him about his background and his career. So let's go ahead and take a listen to that. Hey there, Triple C fans, Josh here, and I'm going to grab the wheel of the conversation and steer into an off-ramp for a really fun discussion. Now, we here at Triple C Podcast, we really try to adhere to all three C's in our name, comics, culture, and cosplay, and especially with that culture C, because there is so much great geek culture out here in the world today, and also that has come before in the years before any of us were even born, but we love it so much. We eat it up like it's candy at the doctor's office. So it is my distinct pleasure to introduce to the audience a man who could be called, in my opinion, one of the great American authors. He is the author of such hit novels as Killer Bowl, The Resurrectionist, Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which was the inspiration for the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and the hit sci-fi novel Space Vulture. Please welcome to the show Mr. Gary K. Wolf. Gary, how are hey. you, sir? Hey, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Actually, uh, in this wobbly world, I'm kind of happy to be anywhere. Yeah. I would definitely say, sir. <laughs> and so to, to, just to, to talk a little bit about yourself before we get down into the meat of the meal with your work, you are, uh, even though you call the Boston area your home these days, you were originally an, an Illinois boy. You were a son of the Lincoln State, were you not? Uh, born and bred in Illinois. Yeah, I was... Uh, uh, I was born in Berwyn Hospital, and uh, if you go to the Berwyn Papers, uh, on my birthday every year they uh, they print famous people who were born at the Berwyn Hospital, and uh, I'm I'm always one of them. Yeah, I grew up in a little farm town called Earlville, Illinois, which is 72 miles, kind of uh, southwest of Chicago, where my dad ran the pool hall and my mother uh, worked in the school cafeteria. Uh, grew up there. Uh, I was probably, oh my gosh, I was probably in my late twenties until I ever left the United States. And I was, uh, probably in my, um, late teens before I ever left the Midwest. Uh, I was in Illinois. I was Wisconsin. I think once we touched on Minnesota, which was a big deal for everybody in the family. Ooh, we went into Minnesota. So yeah, yeah, born and bred Midwestern. So growing up, you were you were a, a kid and a young man during some of the peak periods of pop culture in terms of comic books and science fiction. What were mm -hmm. some of your earliest memories of being inspired by those forms of media to propel you into being an author? Sure. Well, um, I, I'll tell you I'll tell you a good story because it's it's Midwestern. Uh, it's Earlville, Illinois, and it's also uh, revolves around my best friend, uh, John Myers, who uh, grew up with me. Uh, John later became the Archbishop of uh, New Jersey, but uh, back in the day, we were just two kids hanging around in Earlville. We were both the same age, and uh, we hung out. Uh, I was a I was a big reader. I, I read uh, adventure stories, Robin Hood. Um, King Arthur, that kind of stuff, good Treasure Island, Gulliver's Travels. Uh, John read mostly histories and biographies. 
but we both really love science. We both, you know, really had this thing for science. We love science. So one day John brought me this book, and it was called uh, Space Hawk. And John said to me, he said, I just read this. He said, and you've got to read it because it's science, but it's fiction. It's science fiction. And we had never heard of that. You know, we have never heard of that. So I read it, and I mean, I loved it. John loved it. I loved it. So we went to the town librarian, and we said, can you get us more of this science fiction? And she said, yes, I can do that. So she got us, thankfully, good stuff. She got us Heinlein, Asimov, you know, the towering giants of science fiction. And um, we both, um, we both really loved science fiction and uh, started reading more of it. Uh, my, my other choice of reading material, um, which kind of involves my mother a little bit. Uh, as I say, my mother worked in the school cafeteria. My father ran the town pool hall. And uh, my mother and father were both children of the Depression. My father had to drop out of school when he was in the third grade go get a job and my mother had to drop out of school when she was in the eighth grade to go get a job uh and my mother told me you know if you want to get out of this town i mean this town is 1400 people she said if you want to get out of this town and go on and do something with your life and you don't want to stay here for the rest of your life and run your father's pool hall the one thing you can do to make that happen is to read you know, read, 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 just read. And so, you know, wise woman as she was, I took her advice. And I, you know, of course, I read my adventure stories and I read science fiction. But my other two reading materials of choice were, of course, comic books. Uh, I I would I would read every comic book I could get my hands on. I would go to uh, Andy Giles' B Street Smoke Shop uh, every Tuesday when the new comics came in and I would read all the comics I could before he kicked me out. And then I'd buy whatever I could afford with my allowance and take them home and read them and, and trade them to other kids for other comics I didn't have. And I, uh, I, I read the uh, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. They were my favorites. Um, I also was really into Disney comics. I, I, I liked uncle Scrooge, especially I, I loved Archie. Um, Whatever you had, I mean, this was before the Marvel Universe, so I, and, you know, I never got there. But uh, pretty much, uh, pretty much, any action adventure DC comic, I was, I was, I was good with that. And my other reading matter of choice was something that my dad read. Uh, my dad read true crime adventure magazines, and uh, these were very popular back in the forties uh, and fifties, and they were magazines that did stories about true crimes and they would they would have there were photographers who would listen to the police uh radios and they would go to the scenes of crimes and photograph the aftermath of crimes uh robberies uh whatever but the the big the big thing that they all hoped they would get was a murder uh they would go to murder scenes and and film the dead bodies and then uh, sell them to these magazines who would write them up into stories. And if you ever saw a road to perdition with Tom Hanks, uh, Jude Law played one of these photographers who would go to these crime scenes and sometimes restage them, drag the dead bodies around. So that was my reading material. <laughs> I read comic books, adventure stories, and 
gruesome magazine showing really dead bodies. Uh, luckily, I graduated to a better, um, a better category of, uh, of of mystery novel. I, I got into noir mysteries. I discovered Dashiell Hammett and uh, um, Raymond Chandler, Mickey uh, Spillane, and uh, so I kind of grew up reading comic books and mystery novels, and that sort of, uh, and of course science fiction, always science fiction, and of course that sort of uh, channeled what I what I wrote when I finally became a writer. Yeah, absolutely. And so talking about your career as a writer, as I mentioned, you wrote you wrote a couple of books before your uh, before the one that you are one of the ones that you're most famously known for who censored Roger Rabbit. And this book for everyone out there who has not read it, if you thought the movie was good. The, and we'll talk about that a little bit. You need to read the book because the book is what started it all. It's the same with any situation. You like with the countless Stephen King movies that are out there. The book came first. The book is what everyone should pay attention to because it is so fun. It is serious as well because it is it is a combination of noir and the goofy fun humor that you get in the comic books and the cartoon strips. So I, I have to ask you, where did this all begin? You are the father of one of the most well-known cartoon rabbits in pop culture. So where did the idea for Roger Rabbit come from? Yeah, And his wife, let's not forget oh, her. And I Jessica. Mean, whenever, whenever, I, whenever I go uh, to a, uh, a college or high school, to uh, to give a lecture, the the boys all bow down before me in gratitude. Uh, yeah, um, well, I had written three uh, three novels. I had a I had a four novel uh, contract with Doubleday, and um, to me, selling novels or selling short stories came to just easy. I'd never had a reject. I, I would I would write a short story, send it off to a science fiction magazine or uh, somewhere, and they would publish it. And I, I wrote uh, Killer Bowl, which was my first novel, which if you go to a science fiction convention as opposed to a uh, Disney convention, I am not known as the guy who wrote Roger Rabbit. I'm known as the guy who wrote Killer Bowl. Um, it, it, uh, it's still my, um, my most popular science fiction novel. But I'd written Killer Bowl, uh, Generation Removed, and the Resurrection. is were my three first novels. And I had one novel left on my four-novel contract with Doubleday, and uh, I, the deal was I could write anything I wanted, and they would publish it. That was kind of the deal. And so I wanted to write something that had never been done before, uh, something totally unique, uh, and also something that incorporated my loves, which were comic books, comic strips, to some extent cartoons, and noir mysteries. So... I was trying to think, what can I come up with that incorporates all of those? And, uh, you know, sometimes you just have to think about it and think about it and think about it. And uh, I, I was watching Saturday morning cartoons one Saturday morning, you know, purely for research. I told my wife, you know, it's research. I'm just trying to trying to get my creative juices flowing here. And uh, the cartoons were pretty simplistic uh, compared to the cartoons I liked, but uh, I became fascinated with the commercials because the commercials showed cartoon characters. You had Captain Crunch, uh, Snap, Crackle, and Pop, uh, the Tricks Rabbit, Tony the Tiger, cartoon characters talking to real kids 
and nobody seemed to think that was odd. And I saw that, and it just clicked. I said, you know, what if, what if you had a world where cartoon characters were real? What kind of a world would that be? And um, from then on, it was uh, it was just a pure delight for me. I uh, I spent the next uh, two years researching the conventions of cartoons, comic strips. Um, in, in comic books to see what kinds of things happen to cartoon characters that would be impossible for a human. Uh, and, you know, if a cartoon character then came into a human world and did those kinds of things, how would that work? And, um, you know, as, as one example, um, in, the, in the book, the book has the characters uh, as the stars of comic strips and uh, comic books. So um, instead of being drawn, they're photographed. And um, the, they are, um, you know, th- those characters. They, they have the ability to speak with words, uh, you know, like we do, but they choose not to. They, they all talk in word balloons. So when you're talking to a cartoon uh, character, um, he puts up a word balloon or she puts up a word balloon and you have to read what that word balloon says. And if the character turns around, turns his back on you, then this word balloon turns around too. And um, then you either have to learn to read in reverse or you have to, you know, go around to his front side so you can read front ways again. Um, these, these balloons do all kinds of things. Sometimes they break loose and they go off into the clouds and uh, they turn into cumulonimbus and uh, cause rain. Um, if somebody gets shot with a balloon, um, the gun produces a bang balloon and the bang balloon becomes kind of brittle and lays on the ground and, uh, you can pick up the bang balloon and analyze it and tell what caliber tune gun fired it. And then if you find another bang balloon, you can compare the two bang balloons and see if they're from the same gun. Um, when somebody does, when somebody plays a piano, a tune plays a tune piano, the notes come out in a continuous stream and uh, people collect those notes, roll them up, cut them into eight by 10 sheets. And that's where sheet music comes from. So I I had a whole lot of fun playing with cartoon conventions with what kinds of things cartoons did and how that would work in a, in a real human environment. Um, I then, uh, I then came up with a, you know, hard-boiled, suitably hard-boiled private eye at Eddie Valiant, Eddie after my father. Uh, so I kind of thank you for all those gruesome, uh, gruesome magazines you let me read. And um, I, I came up with a, a story that would not work any place except in a world where cartoon characters were real. Uh, you could translate to, if you took the cartoon characters out and replaced them with real people, the story wouldn't make sense. Uh, so uh, I wrote the book, and I wrote the book to be the best book I was capable of writing. And I wrote it to appeal to a reader's imagination so that somebody who read this book would be able to kind of shut their eyes and visualize the world that I was creating. Uh, I, I was I was world building, and I was, I was doing it so that people could shut their eyes and envision it. And you know, I, in my own mind, I succeeded. I, did, I wrote the book. Uh, I thought the book was the best thing I'd ever written. 
so I set it off to Doubleday, and um, they rejected it. He came back. First reject I'd ever had in my writing career. I never had a reject. And they rejected Who Censored Roger Rabbit, which was the name of that book. And um, so I called my editor, Sharon. I said, Sharon, why, why did you reject this book? This is the best thing I've ever written. And she says, oh, I, I agree. She said, it's funny. It's unusual. Nothing like this has ever been done before, but it's so unusual and so unique that I had to send it to the marketing department. They were the ones who rejected it. So I went to the marketing department. I said, why, why did you guys reject this? And they said, well, you know, it, we loved it. You know, everybody thought it was funny. We all laughed out loud. It was laugh out loud funny, but it doesn't fit any category on the bookstore shelf. It's not a regular mystery. It's not a regular adult novel. It's not a kid's novel. Um, it, it, it's, it, 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 there's no category for it. We can't sell this book. So I said, all right, what would you do if somebody brought you The Wizard of Oz or Gulliver's Travels or Alice in Wonderland? What would you do if somebody brought you those today? And the guy thought for a minute, he says, well, I couldn't sell those either. So I went back to my agent and I said, Bill, you know, if, if I can't sell this and publish this, I won't be a writer anymore because this is what I want to do. This was fun for me. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't want to be a writer anymore. So he said, no, 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 we'll, we'll find it a home. So he started sending it out to other publishers, other editors, sometimes uh, several multiple editors, the same publisher. And it, it kept getting rejected, only for the same reason. The editors loved it. Uh, marketing department said, I can't sell that. Uh, so uh, it finally wound up with 110 rejects. And, and my, yeah, and this was back in the day when rejects came by mail. I mean, it was it was an email where you know they would come on your inbox. Now, uh, yeah, you went to the mailbox and you opened it up, and there'd be a letter from some publisher. And my wife used to used to joke that my my trips out to the mailbox every night were the daily disappointments because I'd go out there and there'd be one, two, three, sometimes five rejects on Uncensored Roger Rabbit. And um, 110 rejects. So uh, finally, the book landed on the desk of a woman named Rebecca Martin, who was a senior editor at St. Martin's Press. And Rebecca had just published a major bestseller for them. And so the president of St. Martin's Press told Rebecca, you know, I'm going to give you a vanity project. Uh, Your next book, the next book you edit for us, anything you want, whatever you want, we'll, we'll do it. And um, so just at that time, Roger Rabbit came across her desk. She read it. She loved it like every other editor did. And uh, so she went to the president of the company and said, here's the book I want to I want to publish. And he said, okay, I'll take it home. I'll read it tonight. We'll talk about it tomorrow. So he took it home, read it, came back the next morning, called her in, said, Rebecca, I said you could publish anything you want, but you can't publish this because I can't sell it. And Rebecca stepped up to the plate and said, you said I could publish whatever you want, whatever I wanted, either you publish this or I quit. And that was it. Um, They published it, although in very, very, very small quantities. It was, uh, I think the first printing was was 5,000 copies which is you know, minuscule uh, in terms of the publishing industry. And if if I could do one thing differently in my writing career, if I had the ability to time travel, 
what I would do is I would go back in time to 1981 when that book came out, and I would buy them all because I think they sold for a dollar ninety nine. And now when you go on eBay, they're going for 350, 400 bucks. So I would be a very wealthy man if I had just bought all my own books back then. Yeah. Gary, you are blowing my mind right now. I can't believe that that many people rejected what is now such a bedrock of culture <laughs> in this country. Yeah, yeah hard to believe. Uh, you know, that's that's why I, I always I always tell budding writers, budding artists, budding anything, never give up. You know, if you really and truly believe in what it is you're doing, uh, just keep plugging away at it and keep trying and trying and trying. And eventually, somebody is going to see the light. Um, as a as an addendum, um, when I wrote the sequel novel, who plugged Roger Rabbit, um, we we standardized on the four piece stutter. Uh, when I when I wrote who plugged Roger Rabbit, I had. 10 publishers bidding for the rights to publish that. And uh, the interesting thing is that all 10 of them had rejected the first novel once. Five of them had rejected the first novel twice. And one lucky devil had rejected the first novel three times. So, um, you know, there there is respect eventually. Yeah. Unbelievable. And uh, you're, like you were saying, from... Respect comes eventually. Well, respect came in a huge way for you and Roger when in 1988, the hit film Who Framed Roger Rabbit was released by the Walt Disney Company, directed by Robert Zemeckis and starring uh, in terms of human characters, the still beloved Bob Hoskins as Eddie Valiant with Christopher Lloyd as Judge Doom, Charles Fleischer as the voice of Roger and Kathleen Turner as the voice of Jessica. So let's let's we've talked about we've talked about the book. Half the voice, half the voice of Jessica. Uh, yes, she was uh, the, she was the speaking voice. Amy Irving was the singing voice. Yeah. And uh, uh, how that came to be, uh, we recorded the voices first. And of course, Bob uh, Zemeckis had worked with Kathleen on *Romancing the Stone*. And uh, I mean, he fell in love with whether uh and not not literally but i mean she's just so talented and her voice is so great and he he knew that this would be the perfect voice for jessica rabbit and of course i i agreed wholeheartedly we recorded the voices first and when it came time to sing the song um kathleen couldn't sing the song and, and she was pregnant at the time she was pretty heavily pregnant at the time and whether she really can't sing or whether she couldn't get her breath control. I don't know. I never asked, but she couldn't sing the song. So Steve Spielberg, who was the producer, was there that day listening to the recordings. And he had his wife, Amy Irving, with him. And he said, you know, Amy, you sang in Yentl, you're giving a whack. And he said, Stephen, there's no way that an audience is going to believe that Jessica has one voice when she's singing and another voice when she's speaking. It, it's ridiculous that he said, ah, nobody will notice. And of course, Stephen is is always right. Whether he's right or, or, or wrong, he's always right. Uh, and uh, so Amy sang the song. And in fact, nobody did notice. Uh, Kathleen, because this was very early on, early days when we recorded the voices, nobody really knew if this movie was going to be any good. I mean, they, they didn't know if this was going to be 
uh, a mega hit, a wonderful family movie that would live on forever as it has become, or Howard the Duck. You know, so um, Kathleen chose to not take credit for the voice of Jessica Rabbit. She she would she would do it anonymously. Uh, which is the same thing that James Earl Jones did with the voice of Darth Vader in the first Star Wars movie, because nobody knew if that was going to be any good, if that was going to be a you know knock off Buck Rogers or uh, you know the wave of the future as it turned out, and, and you know that way uh, with both James Earl Jones and Kathleen Turner, if the movie bombed, well you know. I don't know who did that. It wasn't me. It sounds like me, but it wasn't me. Or if the movie is a huge success, there's a certain alert to that. Uh, you know, I did it anonymously, uh, but yeah, it was me. And uh, and so that's the way Kathleen chose. But if you look at the credits, which run longer than a lot of uh, a lot of movies in the 30s, uh, if you look at the credits, you'll see that Amy took credit as singing voice of Jessica Rabbit. Yeah. And uh, just to talk about the voices really quickly, Charles, Kathleen, and Amy, they do an amazing job respectively as each part of those characters. Charles is still – I giggle every time I watch that movie and hear him go, please, Eddie, you got to help me because it's so fantastic to think about a cartoon rabbit teaming up with one a very atypical – and brilliant private eye character, very much in the mold of Dashiell Hammett or Mickey Sp uh, or Mickey Spillane or any of the characters from that period. But one of the voices in this cast, because we could talk about the human cast, getting to work with Christopher Lloyd and Bob Hos Ho Hoskins. But I have to ask, what was it like getting to be a part of a movie that had the amazingly talented Mel Blanc in the cast? <laughs> well. I uh, it was incredible. I mean, this was, I think, I'm not sure, but I think this was Mel's last role. Uh, I think he died shortly thereafter. And, um, he, uh, he did all of his stuff, uh, remotely. I never actually met him face to face. He did all of this stuff remotely, but, uh, the guy's a genius. You know, he did Bugs Bunny and, um, the guy's just a genius. Um, the uh, the interesting one was Charlie because Charlie um, Charlie we discovered um, working in a in a comedy club and Bob Zemeckis had heard about him so we went to watch Charlie do his routine and uh, Charlie did a a bit uh, with Donald Duck having an orgasm which was just hilarious you know and Bob Zemeckis said, I think, I think he would be a good choice for the voice of Roger Rabbit. So Charlie worked with me, and he worked with um, Dick Williams, the animator, to kind of structure what that voice would sound like. And I never, I, I actually never in my head heard Roger's voice because he spoke in word balloons. So I never heard his voice. And when Charlie started coming up with various different kinds of voices I, I when he came to the one that he finally used i said that's it that, that's that's roger that's roger's voice uh dick williams said that um every major successful animation character 
uh, has some kind of a speech impediment, like Porky Pig with his, uh, you know, the, that's all folks, and uh, Sylvester and the Cat. And so they, they looked around for a lot of different speech impediments for Roger, and Charlie came up with, uh, yeah, but if he stutters when he says pee, when he says pee, please, and it works. And, and you know, now when I shut my, my, my eyes and listen, I can't hear anybody else doing that voice except Charlie. I mean, Charlie's it. It was sensational. I'm 100% sensational. Uh, just a final question about the movie before we move on to uh, Space Vulture. Were Because we, we talked a little bit about this before we got down to our conversation, but how pleased were you with the end result of the movie when it was released into theaters? Because you were there from start to finish as the author of the novel, so you got to help be an instrumental part of it. But to see the end result, to see those scenes with Bob interacting with uh, uh, Charlie via the character of Roger or Kathleen as Jessica or the that amazing fight between uh, him and Christopher Lloyd in the Acme warehouse near the end of the film. Did, did, it, did it achieve what you thought it would achieve? Well, I, when, when Disney came to me and said, hey, we want to buy your book and turn it into a movie, uh, my first thought was, well, good luck. You know, I did not think the book was filmable because I had written it to be something that had appealed to uh, readers' imagination. And uh, kind of early on, um, Disney kind of proved me right. They, uh, they, were, they were not having any luck uh, filming it. They, they tried all kinds of different techniques. And admittedly, they bought the novel in 1980 before it came out as a book. Uh, and the technology didn't exist. The technology didn't exist even when they, they really got... Uh, super serious in 1985 when Steve Spielberg got involved and Bob Z got involved. Uh, they, they, they still had not all the technologies, a lot of the technology they actually invented for this film. But at one point early on, uh, Disney came to me and said, you know, we're not having any luck with this. Uh, so we're thinking that instead of cartoon characters, we're going to have the cartoon characters be characters in costume like they are at Disneyland. What do you think of that? And I'm thinking, shit, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have Fred McMurray as Eddie Valiant, um Haley Mills as Jessica, Dean Jones as the rabbit, uh, and Kurt Russell as Baby Herman. I just said, you know, that doesn't that kind of compromise the, the premise just a little bit? And they yeah, I guess so. So uh they went back to the drawing board and eventually what eventually happened was Roy Disney who bought the novel and was uh, kind of shepherding the, the production of it, got forced out in 85 by uh, uh, Eisner, and uh, Eisner brought uh, Jeff Katzenberg along with him from 20th Century, and um, Katzenberg was really the guy that made it happen. He was the champion. He saw that they needed this movie. They really needed this movie to propel them back to the forefront of, uh, of movie making. Uh, he brought in, he and uh, Eisner brought in Steve Spielberg to produce. Uh, Steve brought in Bob Zemeckis. And, uh, you know, from there, it, uh, it just uh, kept, going, kept going higher and higher. Um, when I saw what they were doing, they, they changed the story, but 
the book story is a book story, and the movie story is the movie story, and they both work. Uh, they did not change the essential elements of the book. They didn't change the uh, the characters. I still got Roger, Jessica, Baby Herman, Eddie Valiant. They didn't change the, the concept of tunes existing in a human world. They didn't change Toontown. Um, they kept all the all what I think are the important parts, and the story is uh, kind of secondary. You know, the story in the book works well, and the story of the movie works well. Um, you know, when I saw what they were doing and uh, saw how well they were doing it, to, to the degree that they were doing it, uh, I was just blown away by it. I mean, I was there was there was a time when I was sitting in a room with 35 of the most creative people. I've never met in my life and they're all throwing out gags and ideas on how to make my book and my characters funnier. And I'm thinking to myself, you know, geez, if I had you 35 people, um, sitting around my kitchen table at five in the morning when I was writing this thing, I'd have had the Pulitzer prize, you know? Uh, so basically I, I, uh, they were still working on the movie up until, oh, probably a week before, it was actually released. They were still working on it. And I think animators, they would still be working on it today if somebody didn't say, no, no, we got to, we got to release this thing. So, um, they had the, uh, the premiere at Radio City Music Hall in New York City. And so that I didn't have to come make a long trip West. So, uh, I went to New York and I'm, uh, you know, I'm sitting in the first balcony with the VIPs. Okay. And I've got, Kathleen Turner sitting on my left and Amy Irving sitting on my right. I mean, my two fantasy girls here, the voice of my character sitting on my left and my right. And I'm going to see my movie for the first time all the way through, which I'd never seen because they were still working. I'd never seen it all the way through. Uh, I was going to see my credit on screen for the first time. And I thought to myself, you know, life just doesn't get any better than this. And then, by golly, life got better because Kathleen leaned over and put her hand on my knee. She whispered in my ear, she said, Gary, are you excited? And I said, Kathleen, you have no idea. <laughs> so, um, you know, the, I saw the movie, and the movie is brilliant. Uh, won four Academy Awards. Um, was the highest grossing movie of, uh, of 1988 and uh, continues to to be a stellar performer uh, continues to to be seen by people now mostly on on television Disney Plus uh, shows the movie it's been released on uh, DVD um, and I've got a whole new level of fans you know when it first came out the people who saw it ranged in age from uh, probably children with there were children who saw it uh, up to adults. But the, the main the main audience and my main fan group were probably high school, college, and young adults. And uh, then as they got older, uh, the movie came out on DVD. These these kids got married, had kids, and they started using it as a babysitter and started showing it to their kids. And all of a sudden, my, my fan base gets younger again. And uh, you know now when I go to conventions and sign autographs. Could be anywhere from kids from you know, five years old up to eighty. Um, so it, it's it's been a, 
of big success in that it's really changed culture. It, it's affected uh, popular culture. It, it, it caused a, uh, a renaissance in animation. Uh, without Roger Rabbit, there would have been no Cool World. There would have been no uh, Space Jam. There would have been no Osmosis Jones. Um, there would not be the, the wide range of animation we have today. And uh, it uh, invented characters that I think will outlive us all. Uh, and like I say, Jessica Rabbit. When I went to, I went to China, went to China for six months and went around to a lot of universities. Animation is very big in China. And I went around to a lot of universities uh, giving lectures. And whenever uh, I mentioned Jessica Rabbit, uh, I can't remember the Chinese word for it. I should learn it. But uh, whenever I mentioned Jessica Rabbit, they would say the, her name in Chinese and everybody would laugh. And I said, why are they laughing? They said, well, in, in Chinese, Jessica Rabbit is translated as big melons. So, um, you know, those, those characters are going to outlive us all. Uh, they're iconic characters. And, uh, you know, I'm proud of that. It is something to be unbelievably proud of, just like I would wholeheartedly state that our next topic of conversation, the novel you wrote with the former Archbishop John J. Meyer, Space Vulture, is is something that I think is amazing. For anyone who has uh, who is listening to the sound of my voice and has been listening to my conversation with Gary, you're, uh, we've been talking about his career as a writer, uh, his novel Who Censored Roger Rabbit, and the movie that came from it, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And we, we've talked about science fiction before on this podcast, so I really cannot wait to discuss this part, uh, Space Vulture, because it is such a classic sci-fi-esque novel, very much in the vein of the kind of stuff about uh, you know heroic figures and dastardly villains, so very Buck Rogers and Flash Gordon. I Now, you mentioned that you and uh, John grew up together in Earlville. You were friends. You read science fiction together. So how did you guys come together. How does the man who is the father of Roger Rabbit and the man who was the Archbishop of Newark, New Jersey, come together to write a <laughs> sci-fi novel? Well, like I say, we were we were friends. Uh, we were we were babies together. I mean, our mothers were pregnant at the same time. We were babies together. I my memories, uh, my memories of of Earlville. Uh, there are no memories that don't include John. He was just always a part of my life. He was like a brother to me, and I was like a brother to him. And in fact, uh, his family uh, accepted me as uh, one of the brothers, and my mother and father accepted John as uh, uh, their own their own child. I mean, it was, um, there was never a time when we were not friends, and we stayed friends uh, through, through college, uh, through later in life, and uh, we got together quite often. Uh, he would come to University of Illinois uh, to visit me. I would go to Lawrence College to visit him. Uh, when I moved to San Francisco, he came to visit me there. Um, we became bishop. I went to his elevation at uh, Peoria. Um, he became archbishop. I went to his elevation in, uh, in the Vatican. Um, and then he, he got to be archbishop of Newark. I was living in Boston. We you know, we talked uh, every couple of days, and um, 
we saw each other probably once a month. I would go there, he would come here. And uh, we, we never lost our love for science fiction. We talked about it all the time. He was, John was one of the biggest uh, Star Trek fans you'll, you'll ever find. He can quote you chapter and verse of any Star Trek episode that ever aired. He just knew them all. And um, we would trade science fiction novels, uh, things that we were reading. Uh, and then one Christmas, uh, I decided that I would get two copies of Spacehawk, the first science fiction novel that we had ever read. And I would get one for me and one for John. I would send it to him as a Christmas present, and we could reread it and relive uh, our youth, you know, the, the one that got us started. So I, I found two copies in a, you know, a big used bookstore. It wasn't a used bookstore. It was an antiquarian bookstore. I had to pay big bucks for them, but uh, I sent one to John. I kept one, and I read it. It's the worst novel you've ever read in your life. It was horrible. Oh my God! It, the, it was cardboard characters. It was it was borderline racist. Uh, the, the villain was a, referred to as a slanty-eyed nip. Uh, the, uh, the space hawks accomplice, uh, I guess, not as accomplice, a servant was a, a black guy who was a, a step and fetch it character. I mean, the, the, the writing was trite. The story was horrible. There was just nothing good about it. And I, I'm thinking to myself, you know, this was the book that changed my life. I mean, if I hadn't read this, there would be no Roger Rabbit. There's a straight line from this piece of crap to Roger Rabbit. And, and so I called John and I said, John, did, did you read Space Hawk? He said, well, yeah, I did. I said, what'd you think? And he said, well, it wasn't very good. It wasn't very good. And I said, uh, one of us, we, we argued uh, forever over who said it, but one of us said, you know, it's a shame that we can't rewrite it the way we remember it instead of the way it actually was. And uh, so we started doing that. And uh, it took two years. Of course, he was in Newark. I was in Boston. Uh, we worked by phone. Uh, we worked by computer. Uh, we'd get together, uh, you know, once a month or so, go over stuff, and it was just a, just a sheer delight. Um, we at first thought that we could just kind of rewrite it and make it, you know, politically correct and um, just kind of update it. But it was impossible. It was just no way that you. It was it was too bad. So we wrote a, an entirely new novel. Um, we did keep the, the names of some of the characters. And uh, like Hawk Carse is uh, uh, a galactic space marshal in our book. And he was also, uh, I don't remember what he was, Space Hawk. But uh, we added some new characters, added a new villain. And uh, we did keep some of the dialogue, which even after, what, 40 years, we could still quote, like... Uh, um, he, he, uh, he pressed the, pressed the trigger, uh, his, his gun gave off of the zap and the, uh, and a, a hole appeared in the middle of, of the villain's forehead and the air was filled with the, with a smoky stench of, of, of burnt flesh, you know, I mean, you know, we could still recite that 50 years, 30 years after we read the book. 
And we incorporated a couple of those. But, uh, uh, you know, I went to my agent and I said, hey, you know, can, can, you, can you sell a book that's written by the career of Roger Rabbit and the Archbishop of Newark, which is an homage to the first science fiction book they ever read when they were in the seventh grade? And my agent says, oh, you don't even have to write the book. <laughs> I could sell that based on the premise. And he was right. I mean, we, so we sold it to Tor. Um, the reviews were were phenomenal. Uh, I blush with, to read the reviews. They, they were just incredible. Uh, it was it was picked uh, as as a science fiction essential, which is a book, which means that it is a book that every science fiction collector, serious science fiction collector, has to have in their library. Um, the New York Times did an article on the ten best pulp science fiction novels ever written. And Space Vulture is one of them. Um, so uh, what was really gratifying was we started getting fan mail, a lot of fan mail, from guys our age who uh, said, geez, I didn't think anybody was ever going to write a novel like this anymore. You know, an old school pulp science fiction novel, action adventure. And then they started giving it to their kids. And we started getting fan mail from younger younger people, you know, and boys and girls both. Uh, and they're saying, wow, this is really good. You know, I didn't know stuff like this existed. This is really, really good. So it was phenomenally gratifying uh, for the both of us. Actually, uh, right now, we are, uh, well, I am now working to uh, turn Space Hulter into an animated TV series. And, uh, you know, as, as you mentioned, John John died a couple of weeks ago. Um, I'm really sorry he's not going to be here to see it, but uh, i got to believe that somewhere he's going to be, you know, watching it on his two-mile-wide uh, wide screen TV uh, up, in the, up in the cloud somewhere. It, it is, like you said, it is sad that he is no longer with us, but I have grown up loving Roger Rabbit my whole life, and... I have to just say from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Thank you so much, Gary, for the gift of Roger, of for what the book has meant to me and for what the movie has meant to me. And thank you for the gift of Space Vulture because I love classic sci-fi. So these, these two books you've written, the movie that you helped create, have had such a profound impact on who I am as a human being. Well, I'm uh, happy to do it. And, you know, as I, as I repeatedly say, if when I die – uh, and, and they put my my gravestone over my over my uh, uh, my grave, and if it says Gary K. Wolf, he created Roger Rabbit in Toontown. That's enough, you know. I'll be happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. And so, folks, from all of us here at the Triple C Podcast, thank you, Gary, for the gift of your time, for the gift of Roger, Eddie, Jessica, and for the gift of Space Vulture. If you want to learn more about Mr. Wolf, go check out his website, GaryWolf.com, and stay tuned, pun intended, for more news about the Space Vulture animated series. Gary, thank you again, and have a great day. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. So right off the bat, I just want to say um, I really appreciate how and kind he is after you know decades and decades of this right like regardless of what he was speaking about whether it was you know his novels or the comics or stuff um he always or the movies 
he always spoke about the other people who were involved and who were part of that creation, whether it was getting to write a book with, you know, his childhood best friend or, you know, getting to work with, you know, the greats like Spielberg. Um, it was just, it was a very, it was a very kind interview, Josh. I Really well done. He had the chutzpah of an Eddie Valiant, you know what I mean? Like, you can definitely tell that... <laughs> You know, he put a lot of himself in that character, but he's such such a kind, such a kind guy. And but like you were like you were saying, Mari, just learning a lot about the people, his collaborations, and kind of the environments he was in when he was working on not just the movie, but when he was trying to create these novels, and the amount of rejection that he had to go through in order to push something through. And sometimes you need to get rejected 110 times before eventually you create something that will withstand the test of time like like Roger Rabbit will. And, you know, it seems daunting, but it's just you, you just you just have to push yourself through. You know what I mean? And it, that, I don't know. That just really inspired me hearing that just like not only he stuck to it after after that much, but but look at what became of that effort. You know what else I found very inspiring? He talks about, especially like Roger Rabbit, right? Um, like it was yesterday. Like he's closing his eyes, answering your questions, and just like he lives in this world. He was talking about world building. Um, and you can tell, right? Because he was talking about his process for how he he created the story of Roger Rabbit and Toontown and, and how, you know, the physics of how cartoon characters would work in the real world. Um, and that is what I loved about that movie, right? All of the fourth wall breaking and the obvious gags and the physics of it, because I really do appreciate when people and authors take the time to think that stuff through. Um and it it was so great to listen to this to your interview because i mean he has to have been talking about this for 30 40 years already and it was he still has so much joy in in these things that he created it was yeah chutzpah is a good word for it <laughs> i'm glad you both really enjoyed it because these conversations are not just fun for me to get to talk to these people who have meant so much to the geek community and the creative nature of what it means to be a fan and also a creator as well but they're also just a blast because we get so much wisdom from them i i, I cite my interview i did with hina khan from the cast of stargirl over the summer she dropped some mm-hmm. and and eric goins too like those conversations they dropped some seriously thought-provoking uh psychological not psychological philosophical bombs on me during the conversation where in the afterwards i was like be cool be cool but it's like <laughs> Wow, I just had my whole worldview like twisted in a very positive way because of this discussion. Like it's making me think more about myself as a creator, myself as an individual, how I process things. And 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 hearing Gary talk about how many times he got rejected because they couldn't nobody could publish who censored Roger Rabbit because there had been nothing like it before. I I yeah. almost wanted to like flip out no, on mic during the interview because I was like, how the heck does somebody not want to publish a novel like this? And then he countered with the fact that he had said, you know, if somebody had gone to a publisher then in the late 70s, early 80s and tried to publish The Wizard of Oz, 
it wouldn't have happened. Nobody would have right. known how to classify it. And that made is what made me realize when you are creating something entirely new and different, you're going to get that opposition, not because people don't want to see you succeed, but because they don't know how to fit their brains around what you've shaped, around mm-hmm. what you've done. And I think of the story of how many times Siegel and Schuster got rejected when they were trying to sell Superman up until the point that the you know bright folks over at Detective at uh, Detective Comics, which eventually became DC, uh, you know, back in the 30s, were like, we're going to take a chance on th- on these two nice boys from Cleveland. They got this character. He's a strong man in tights. He's got some powers. We're going to put him on, on the cover. And 80 years of Superman, people. You know, th- that's my point, is that when you eventually find the people who are willing to work with you and get on your level, that's where you succeed. That's where dreams are made and the stuff of fantasy becomes reality. And I I laughed internally. I, I, I really had to bite my tongue when he was talking about the premiere of Who Framed Roger Rabbit and having these two gorgeous women on either side of him in the theater and it's like Kathleen Turner reaches over puts her hand on his knee is like well what do you think Gary and he's just trying to not lose it because it's his baby well I I hope to I hope to one day like sit in a theater or I don't know like attend my own book publishing or something like that it just has to be Mm -hmm. such an an amazing Mm -hmm. feeling and I, I I love the fact that most guys fawn over him as the father of as the creator of Jessica Rabbit and that's not a bad thing necessarily because she's a very voluptuous cartoon character okay (laughs) and that makes you stop and think because cartoons should not look that good by that same token Lola Rabbit makes you question a lot of things because rabbits aren't supposed to be sexy people excuse me excuse me she was Lola Bunny thank you I'm sorry. Yes, I realized I made a. I made. <laughs> you're just, you're despicable. But yes, no, you're right. Lola Bunny does also make you ask questions about yourself because it's like, um, what is this feeling I'm having for a cartoon rabbit? That shouldn't look that good so in basketball funny. shorts. No, 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 no. Uh, there are a lot of things wrong with. Okay, we need to do a commentary track on Space Jam one day. We we really do. The yeah. four of us. I would love to do a commentary track on one of the greatest animated live action movies ever. Oh wait, I already would do that because it's Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'm sorry, Space Jam. Roger came first, and Roger Rabbit had Mickey and Bugs on camera for the only time in their histories. You just had Bugs Bunny playing hoops with Michael Jordan. Yeah, that's one of the, oh my god, that's like one of the only Warner Brother Disney crossovers it's out the there. It's the only Warner Brothers Disney crossover I can think of. Just like there are very few DC Marvel crossovers. It is now time for something really fun. We're not going to be doing our typical all-over-the-place reviews. Instead, it's time for all the reviews and something new. We're having some fun right here. So sit right back, have a laugh, have a draft of dark, cold beer. Wait, no, that's cheers. But today we're trying something a little different here. I just made that up. Yeah, that was that was incredible that that you just busted that out. Did you say dark, cold beer or dork? I said dark cold beer. I said dark cold beer. Yeah, I'm sorry. There is no other dark beer but Guinness. Everything else pales in comparison. 
that is fair enough. But hey, there are a lot of choices for beer out there, just like we have a lot of choices for Jokers here, and three Jokers uh, by Jeff Johns and Jason Fabic. So uh, this this is a book uh, at least five years in the making. I think the first mention of this concept of, of there even being three Jokers, this began at the uh, tail end of the New 52 in 2015. There's this big event called Dark Side War, and essentially uh, in Dark Side War, the Justice League get these crazy, funky, godlike powers, and Batman gets access to the Mobius chair. This is a MacGuffin in DC Comics that if you, you sit your butt in it, you get access to all the knowledge in the universe if your head doesn't explode, and he's Batman, so obviously his head wouldn't. So... Batman sits down in the Mobius chair and he's giving it a test and he says, who, who killed my parents? He gets the answer, Joe Chill, and he says, okay. And then he asks the, the Mobius chair, who is the Joker? And the answer he gets back is there are three. And then we get nothing on this, right? Until about, I don't know, a month or so ago when Three Jokers number one comes out. Um, and this was supposed to tie into Doomsday Clock. This was supposed to tie into a lot of things at DC that never came into fruition after uh, Jeff Johns was let go as chief creative officer at DC. So this was part of this big architecture that he was planning over four years that eventually was just mishandled and, and just really uh, fell through. So DC Rebirth had a lot of good things, but ultimately... It, it, DC Rebirth for me will be remembered in how it was ultimately mishandled. So we finally get three Jokers. Really, you can consider this the end of DC Rebirth, 150%. Um, this book is, it, it, the question is, is it an Elseworld? So I guess who wants to kind of start and break down like what actually is happening in the thing? So... Like you were saying, Kevin, it all starts back during Dark Side War when Batman gains access to the Mobius chair. But then there is also a little something in the DC Rebirth one-shot where he's down in the Batcave with Alfred, poring over case files and remarking how Joker has been picked up in three different places. So, the thing... Can you please repeat your question so I can make sure I answer it properly? Because we are handling a very meaty comic book piece here, people. Oh, just like who wants to handle the, the very beginning of, of uh, Three Jokers, how the story, it's not the context, but how the story itself actually begins. So the story begins with the Joker striking at three different times in Gotham City. I forget one of them, but two of the other instances are the murdering of a Polynesian Hawaiian uh, comedian who was known as Fat Man by his stage handle, and also the death of several gentlemen at the uh, Ace Chemical Plant who physically do resemble the Joker as he was before he took a dip in a chemical vat and the two thugs that coerced him into robbing the, the, the plant and the Monarch Playing Card Company as the Red Hood. They have all been dosed with Joker juice. So their yes, and- physical characteristics are completely deformed into big rictus death head grins. And also the the murder of the the Moxon crime family who were accused of uh, setting up the murder of the Wayne. So Thank all you. of this, yeah, all of this happens at the the exact same time. Um, so then we're, we're we're following Batman, and we get this interesting sequence of him coming back from a fight with the Penguin. He gets shanked in the side by one of his umbrellas, and then we get this like side by side of 
all of Batman's scars that he's gotten oh. from his worst villains. And then, you know, it's like one one panel's Bane, and then another panel corresponds with Catwoman, and then eventually you just get more and more panels of the scars that that Bat, that uh, Bruce Wayne has gotten from the Joker. You know, he has caused the most, inflicted the most physical, visible physical pain uh, upon him. So we're figuring out about all these murders, you know, uh, Batman, Bruce Wayne's coming back from fighting the Penguin. He finds out about the crime family getting murdered. Barbara Gordon, she's working out. She hears about this Gabriel Iglesias-esque comedian, his murder getting live-streamed by uh, by uh, the Joker, and she, like, runs so fast that she breaks the treadmill, and one of the guys is like, oh, geez, not another one, which that was a, a, a little hokey. Uh, but we, we, we proceed, and, and, and then we get the similar type of thing with, with Barbara and a shot of her belly button and then a shot of her abdomen wound like her a take a, a, a take on this i saw is that like one one belly button is from her birth and the other is from her rebirth as oracle after she got shot by uh by the joker and then we go back over to jason he's looking for the joker has his as his flashback about how he was uh killed in death of the family and uh essentially uh, Barbara and uh, Bruce, they're investigating Ace Chemicals and they're noticing this is, you know, this is weird that all of these things are happening simultaneously, but these guys who were murdered, it, it, it's distracting from the fact that a, a vat of Joker serum was emptied and there's a transport truck missing from Ace Chemicals. Does anyone want to pick up uh, from where we, uh, uh, oh, where we get after one of the men who was found uh, at Ace Chemicals turns out he's actually alive so he gets put in the back of an ambulance can i just give a quick shout out because you were talking about those sort of like side by side panels of like the heavy scarring to the the different litany of batman villains that you know gave him those scars it was a beautiful concept and execution but particularly the way that they managed to to capture both the entry wound and the exit wound of a bullet in one shot like uh snaps Jason Fabok for that because I just uh I was just a really beautiful piece of art in a horrible way yeah oh I I agree I'm looking back over it and it makes you think about the punishment that Bruce has taken over the years the first time I remember ever seeing <laughs> the 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 quilt pattern of scars that he has accumulated over the years was in Batman Hush after he's let Selina in on the secret and they're down in the cave and she noted and she's like running her hand over his back just remarking quietly like so many scars and that's the first time I can ever remember seeing that was in Batman Hush and here it's beautifully compounded with the way it does transition into more and more injuries from the Joker. And just those few panels where it's just the laughter reverberating in his mind's eye while Alfred is stitching him up and the look on his face. Like, that's the Batman look that could put Guy Gardner in his place, people. And, that f and then the way it flashes back and how in the flashback to the night his parents were killed, the only visible color is the red of the popcorn box and the red from his father's bullet wound. And then the red of their blood spilled out on Crime Alley. I loved that. And I realize I'm backpedaling a little and I apologize, but that kind of visualization is 
some of the reasons I love comic book art is because when you do such a minimalist study with black and white art and then do like one focused primary color, it draws your attention and it's gorgeous. Totally. Miller, Frank Miller was really good about that in his day. Um, and I do want to say for our listeners, we're going to go into full spoilers with this thing. So if you haven't read Three Jokers yet, maybe uh, come back to this once you, once you have read that. All three issues are, are out now, so definitely go to your local and pick them up. Um, but, so, yeah. So I have a question for you guys, right? Because how many times do you think that you have seen Martha and Thomas Wayne die? So right, like so many that's times. what I was thinking when I was, you know, it's like nine panels, right? They tell this whole tragic story in, in about nine panels, and I'm like, man, I have had to, as a reader, relive that death so many times, right? And like this is a a a, a, a series like th- these three issues really dives into mental health. A, a lot and, and how that shapes us and so for me this was just a very sort of interesting experience where I found myself as a reader very much sort of unexpectedly connecting with the character in a way that I hadn't before like up until now I was like man I didn't realize I had PTSD which I don't and I'm not making light of but like you know like this time it really like kind of triggered me a little bit and affected me because it's like fuck like it, they, it is they are very moving panels in the way that Josh was just talking about the art conveys this very beautifully it's just a couple of words here and there because we know the story and it's just it's heavy right off the bat it it absolutely is and just to keep moving ahead on the panel work something i loved about this story and i want to bring it up a little bit more as we're um, you know walking our way through three jokers is that this is a batman story where he does go full on detective like he one of his titles is the world's greatest detective and over 80 years he has earned it because writers have written him to be an expert criminologist and solver of sometimes almost unsolvable puzzles you have See, to be you know, and well, I, I was going to say i i in this story i think batman's detective skills are extremely lacking but i I, really? I will go into that see, yes i see, will go into that by the end see i i use the example of when he's talking with jim gordon and harvey bullock at ace chemicals about these three poor schlubs that have been stuffed into red hood suits but they all also physically resemble the joker as he was and the two thugs and it's the and it's the dialogue right here. Their fingerprints will have been burned off by the chemicals that bleached their skin. The same chemicals will corrupt any DNA testing done, and nerve damage to their facial muscles has broken their jaws into smiles, making matching dental records nearly impossible. Okay, I would, would have that, never would that really th- would that really screw up the dental record though? Okay, I don't I don't know. I, I'm just thinking out loud, yeah, but that maybe that not necessarily. I I agree to a to an extent. Yeah, the dental stuff, no, but the chemicals uh, burning off sure, their fingerprints not? and corrupting their DNA, 100%. You take a, a vat into that many unidentifiable chemicals mixed together, it's gonna, that cocktail is going to screw up your, in, your, your DNA and it's going to burn some stuff. But, and, but that's deductive right there. They could have written that any other way that you're seeing three poor schlubs who have all been turned into 
like they're dead as the and they look somewhat like the clown prince. But I would have never have thought to done that. But having Bruce say that, that's the deductive reasoning right there because the average Gotham beat cop is not going to come to that conclusion. Bullock, yes. He may be a bit of gruff around the edges, but Harvey's a good detective. Jim Gordon, absolutely. You don't get to be the commissioner of Gotham's some police without being a smart cookie. But for the but for the average person, the average reader, they're not going to think about that. So it's moments like that that make you think about the the Batman not just as a two-fisted avenger of justice, but also as the world's greatest detective. Sorry. Very long explanation, and I apologize for that. I'm just going to shut my trap. So I guess kind of moving along with the action here. So we have one of these gentlemen at uh, Ace Chemicals. He's thrown in the back of uh, of this ambulance, and then Batgirl and Batman are escorting him to the hospital. When we see the hands of the one of the paramedics unbuckling this man who's been Jokerized and start strangling him and pulling him up, and you're like, oh my god, the Joker is, is in the ambulance. No, it's the Red Hood, right? And he's basically, like, interrogating him, as the Red Hood does, by hoisting him up in the air and saying, you know, what did the Joker, what's the last thing the Joker said before he bleached your ass? So the, this causes the uh, ambulance to swerve. Batman does – this is actually one of the coolest sequences I've seen in a Batman thing in a long time where he hops on the top of the ambulance, like puts some sort of magnetic thing on the top, and he rappels down and kicks open the back of the door. It's cool shit. It's really mm-hmm. fucking cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they stop they, – they, they get the ambulance to stop. Uh, you know, Batman fights with, with uh, Red Hood. And we cut over to the missing uh, Ace Chemicals truck, right? It's in the middle of nowhere, and we see it veering into the sketchy Stranger Things-looking hovel, I guess. A man comes out, he's got a hat, he's got a long a long trench coat, and he's got a cane, and he goes, what a life. He goes up to the door, he knocks on the door, and he tells a joke. He goes, I brought some roadkill home to grill. A man op- another man opens the door and he says, on a related note, do you need a bike? And here are two of the three Jokers, right? We've got the comedian and the clown. This is the killing joke Joker, and this is the, the 50s, almost Cesar Romero, Cesar Romero Joker, I guess. I guess if you, if, you, if you could kind of compare him, you know, kind of the jokey Biff-Bam-Pow Joker. So... You know, they have some sort of a plan. They're going up to their boss, whoever their boss happens to be. And uh, we see that it is the Joker from the 40s, right? So he has a plan to make a better Joker, whatever that means. And even one of the Jokers is like, "What? why? Like, you know, you're trying to define us too much, but whatever. You think you're the boss? You're the boss. Tell us what to do. So we go to the Gotham Aquarium. Uh this is where this is where uh, the the gang at this point it's it's uh, Batman it's Jason and it's Barbara together and they're kind of figuring out they're like okay we just need to figure out where where all this Joker t- Joker juice went to that's kind of what what we're after right now so they go in this aquarium Batman turns on his light and he sees that all of the fish and a shark have been Jokerized right they pour, they poured some of the formula uh, into the top <laughs> and then. One of okay, there's a character who shows up who I guess is like a bit character named Gaggy. Josh, who the hell is Gaggy? All right, so Gaggy is his real name is Gagsworth 
A. Gagsworthy, and he was a dwarf, a little, a, and I say dwarf, you know, a, a, a small person, who was the first sidekick to the Joker. He originally appeared in Batman 186 in 1966. Uh, John Broom and Shelley Moldoff were, were, did the writing and, and chores on that book. And he was originally a star of Haley's Circus because of his tightrope act and his ability to shatter glass with his voice. Later, he was kind of uh, replaced by the Flying Graysons, and he became a clown, and he resented this, so the Joker noticed how he was a very tough, evil little clown and brought him on as part of his crew. And Gaggy hasn't been seen in a very... I can't even remember the last time I saw Gaggy, except, I think, a flashback sequence on Batman Brave and the Bold. So yeah, it's a it's a Morrison levels of deep cuts. It's a very like. Morrison level of deep cut. And talking about Morrison, y'all have read the Killing Joke. Did anybody notice how that Batman's light is is that's an homage to Brian Boland with it that it's the bat symbol that is the light? Because that's right out of Killing Joke, right there, people. When he's uh, going through Joker's funhouse. Good catch. I have my moments. I have my moments. There, there are... There are lots of nods to that, and like the, even the very first couple pages where you have like the bat, uh, the uh, Batmobile veering into Wayne Manor is very reminiscent. I mean, you have like a very more esque Watchmen esque nine panel grid. I mean, this is very much uh, more esque in oh, its yeah. style, but I think it does it well and subtly enough where you see the inspiration, but it it doesn't feel too ham fisted. I would say I think I think it works pretty well. So. You know, we have this big fight, this very, very Adam West, almost like Adam West style fight, and eventually uh, Red Hood shoots the the tank where the Jokerized shark uh, is, and he busts him out, and this is great. You know, this is giving me Geo flashbacks. Crazy oh, God. Flashbacks. Uh, and, and the shark eats, eats, eats Gaggy, so that's, that Gaggy's done. No more Gaggy. Yeah. Oh, also, did anybody catch how the Joker's thugs all wore name tags on their on their sweaters? They all wore the same outfit, like a long sleeve shirt with a with a short sleeve like sweater pulled over, flat caps of varying kinds with long trousers, and the stitching is all like Biff, Pow, Zloink, and that to me was very Adam West because like. That, that that was a thing on the Adam West show is that the thugs for the Joker and Riddler and Penguin and Catwoman, Hatter, Egghead, Marsha, Queen of Diamonds, they all wore the same outfits. Uh, you want a really great example? The Penguin's thugs in the Adam West Batman movie. They all wore the same striped shirts and flat caps and stuff or sans flat caps. So that right there was my my uh, that was my Adam West moment. But poor Gaggy, he may be an evil little man, but that is something that I would not wish on my worst enemy is literally having a shark fall on you and you're eaten. Yeah, that is something that I noticed horrifying. about. Yeah, it, it was something I noticed about all three of these issues, and that each one kind of takes on the the tone of the not like fully takes on the tone of the comics of, like, that era of Joker. Like, this is 50s, 60s Joker. They have this situation, and then, then in the next two uh, issues, you'll have situations that remind you, that, that feel very kind of 80s or very 40s. It's almost like Flex Mentallo in that way. Thank where, like, you every... for bringing up Flex, my dude. Yeah, it's like it's like Flex Mentallo where every single 
one of those four issues is meant to take on the tone of a different era of comics. This is sort of like taking on different eras of Batman tonally. So the gang gets the drop on on the clown here, they knock him out, and then Commissioner Gordon uh, goes into Batman's ear and says, yeah, we've got uh, another one of them cornered. So Batman says, okay, keep this guy here, watch him until the Arkham transport comes, I'm going to get this other Joker. I'm going to see what's going on. Like, we can't do this. Like, they're working in, in a group, so now we got to stick together too. So... Now, this is when we get, I think, the most interesting part of this first issue, right? Where you have Barbara and you have Jason Todd and you have this Joker uh, uh, locked up. And the Joker kind of goes on. And this is the Joker that that beat Jason Todd to death in in Death of the Family. So he's saying, how do you remember when that happened? You were, you know, like, look at you. You're You're the Red Hood. You know, why would you do that unless... You know, you're really trying to get under Batman's skin. We beat you within an inch of your life, and you're taking on, you know, the Joker's former persona? You remember what you said when I nearly beat you half to death? And then it cuts to this panel of Jason Todd saying, like, you know, stop, stop. I'll do whatever you want. I'll be your Joker. It's like, well, look at you now. All you're doing is getting under Batman's skin. Now, here's the problem with this, right? I went back to Batman number 427, right? That's the the second or third issue in the Death of the Family story arc. He never says that. He never says that at, at any point in that story. So there is a lot of picking and choosing and making, like falsely, falsely remembering or just kind of like misrepresenting what Death in the Family was, because people don't remember that that was about the Joker becoming Ayatollah Khomeini's, like, emissary. Oh, God, and then, yes. And then, yeah, and then, like, and then Jason Todd was, like, locked in a warehouse, an arms warehouse with his mom, and it blows up. Like, Jason Todd gets killed from an explosion, not, well, getting beaten from an inch of his life, but also the explosion, and I think there's... It could be John's misremembering with everybody else, but I feel like there's kind of like a mandala effect about this particular storyline, about really what it meant and what it was about. And I'm not against changing, you know, retconning a little bit. If if someone has an idea for that story, that would have made it more meaningful than having the Joker, having it center on the Joker being Ayatollah Khomeini's emissary, then sure, you know, talk about this. But it seems weird, right? It seems like this... If you're okay, we're talking about the omniverse, right? We're talking about continuity. If you have a story like this, which has continuity, but it's continuity of like three books, right? You gotta make sure that you're you're keeping that continuity tight. You don't have to consider 80 years of history, but if you're gonna do a follow-up to Killing Joke and Death in the Family and the 1930s comics, you gotta make sure you're getting that shit right. So I found that a little bit strange considering how that is like a predication for how the jokers treat uh jason todd moving forward i will say this one of the things about the joker that we need to remember is that he once quipped the line if i'm going to have a past it might as well be multiple choice so the fact that johns has written this in a somewhat misremembered style seems to play more to the joker's attitude of just being all over the place you know he 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 gets inside your head and he messes with you and he certainly messes with jason up until when we get the hugest the the biggest punchline i've ever seen in a batman comic that is part of canon or otherwise but i want to just since we're talking about death in the family 
this is a bit of a history lesson that a lot of people our age won't won't know was that this is how people voted on Jason's living or dying. It was on the back of issue 427, an advertisement with two 900 numbers that fans could call. The act, they were active for 36 hours, started on September the 15th at 8 o'clock in the morning Eastern Time and ended on September the 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. You were charged 50 cents per call. Maybe that's how it was back then. 10,614 votes were cast. And when tallied, this is where it's going to blow your minds, boys and girls, nerds of all ages. The final results, 5,343 votes in favor of Jason's death. 5,271 wanted him to live. A margin of 72 votes, people, decided the fate of the second Robin. Okay, there were some thoughts about like i think someone had used like a dial bot or something like a lot of the results of that were definitely skewed but when they say that the dial bots didn't exist back then or or whatever or whatever you know redialer and also charging 50 cents per call there's no way you would have had dial bots back then people knew what they the fans knew what they were getting themselves into i'm not trying to argue against you i'm just saying if you're talking about what we have to deal with in today's culture versus 1988 it's a completely different ball of wax I mean, I'm not saying it's the same thing. I'm just saying that, like, to say that it was 100%, um, you know, the fans voting him dead and not there wasn't some manipulation there. Um, I think, like, I, I see. Okay, but the point is that, like, to say that it's the Joker that killed Jason Todd, that's not entirely, you know, genuine. It was you! <laughs> you out there! It was you! Um, but I, I, don't, I don't know. Well, anyway, so we're we're leading up to this, and that sidebar was just to you know fill in some information, fill the information bucket, as it were, because Jason does what he'd been wanting to do since he first crawled back out of the ground and finally got over himself long enough to get his life back on track. He puts a bullet in the clown's head in the most glorious brain-splattering headshot I've seen. Gordon. Ever Like, that thing is a whole panel of brains and blood all over. And it even arcs off across the panel. Like, it isn't confined yeah. to the grid. It's spl- like the Joker's hair flies up into the top of the panel. The blood and, and and gore sprays off into the far right. And even is starting to, you know, disappear off, off the white page. Like, just absolutely gorgeous gorgeous people and i realize that it's the joker we all want him dead but that shot alone is great and the way it ends is just i love that barbara is she's mad and you'd think she's mad for the she's like he's like i ended it don't tell me you didn't want this too after everything he did to you no i didn't want this really when's the last time you missed barbara because she threw a batarang and she misses she misses, and this is a woman who's got impeccable aim. She's the police commissioner's daughter. You know she logs time at the range ta- range people. Think about that. And I... Oh, just the anger in her face. I can hear the righteous anger when she says, screw you, Jason. And then the way that first issue ends, man, I hope that's the right one. And I'm like, that's like some SNL stuff right there, people. That's wah, some, wah. Yeah, seriously total want want. Everywhere you look. Oh no, really? We're not we're not full housing this one, boys and girls. <laughs> so, and then you got we lead into issue two, and so, so I'll just yeah, I'll just say off the bat though, 
<laughs> Off the bat. <laughs> this is how we're going to do it. This was my favorite issue of the three. I thought this was very, very strong what they set up. I thought they came out of the gate just beautifully like we've talked about the panels in it like the artwork the story that they're telling right away uh is apparent the dynamics of the group is fantastic um yes this little end scene dialogue the no holds brutal honesty of like when the last time you missed like you have to know that person like you know that person you know that's going to cut them you're not giving them that place to hide you know, and have to confront, you know, what, you know, the truth is she wanted him to die, right? Like, I just thought this was a fantastic issue. I agree. And so much so that I'm going to make a declaration right now. Zach couldn't join us today. He needed to take a break, and that happens. But we really wanted to do a group review of Three Jokers. So, we... I, 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 Kevin floated this idea in the chat, and Mari, you're welcome to say yes or no to this, but I think that it is a good idea that we hit pause on reviewing Three Jokers till we can pick it up next week and have Zach be a part of the discussion to hear to talk about issues two and three because we just we just ran roughshod over issue one and we three did a very fine job but I would really like to get Zach's involvement on this because he's a big Batman fan too and I would love to hear his thoughts on what is what I'm calling one of the penultimate Batman Joker stories in the 80 years these two have been trading blows across the comics pages yes no what do you think Oh, yeah. No, I I think that's a great idea. And in fact, it's probably a better idea because we should probably dedicate a little bit more time to it Mm -hmm. because, like, I could talk about, you know, there's so much to talk about that I could easily keep, we could keep going for another hour, two hours, and I think maybe even just get through issue two. You know what I mean? So, Mm -hmm. yeah, let's let's save a little bit of this this magic for next week. (laughs) Absolutely. So... I am just, I'm not going to give a listener's review of this, but I'm going to encourage everyone who is uh, lis- who is listening to today's show, if you have not picked up Batman 3 Jokers, uh, get Do copies. So. Yes, no. If you, if you missed out on it because you're busy or you don't read comics as much, get to your local comic book store, see if they can order you copies of issue one and two, or if they have them uh, being sold over the counter, probably for a slightly outrageous price of a little higher than the markup was. Bite the bullet and go for it. This is something that you cannot miss out on. Yes, it is not gonna. Pro- it is more than likely not going to be weaved into the canon of DC Comics moving forward because it is removed from what Jeff Johns' original vision was tying in with Doomsday Clock. But who cares? This is Batman and the Joker. Nothing else standing between them as far as, you know anything there's no secondary villains as from the from the gallery nobody else from the prime four no riddler no penguin no catwoman no two-face no mr freeze no talia no no one this is the clown and the caped crusader and that's all i need to say and if that doesn't sell you then very kindly, go get yourself some shock therapy, kids. I know I like it every once in a while. 
So are you are you the comedian or the clown? Oh, I don't know. How about I just drop my pants and then give everyone a shocking handshake? <laughs> oh, God. The, the, the pervert. Got it. Got no, it. I'm more like <laughs> Jack know? Nicholson meets Mark Hamill meets Cesar Romero. <laughs> I'm as oh, much. I'm... God, I do want to talk about. I do really want to dig into that, though, right? Like, and how well this actualizes those differences, and the you know. So, le- we are going to have to put a pin in this, otherwise, we are just going to keep talking about it. <laughs> oh, It'll be I a know. meaty discussion next week. Definitely, do not miss that. Oh, I know, kids. So tune in. Unky Joker wants you to. And what Unky Joker wants, Unky Joker gets. Okay, that, at, I realize out loud that sounds a lot more than worse than I meant it to, but come on, it's the Joker. He usually follows it up with a whoopee cushion or a pie in the face. Whether it's filled That's with true. acid or not remains to be seen. That we is always do need a soundboard. I do agree with that. <laughs> yeah, okay. Then, <laughs> then let's... Kevin. Okay. Then let's actually build a studio and get a soundboard here, people, because I would love to have some fun with that. I would have way too much fun with that. Just like we had a lot of fun on today's episode. We had some laughs. We had some good conversation. We had a great interview sharing my, my dialogue with Gary K. Wolf. Do go check out his work. If you loved Who Framed Roger Rabbit, read Who Censored Roger Rabbit. It is a delightful book. And do go check out the novel Space Vultures, because if you love old-school sci-fi as much as you love the New Age stuff, if you grew up listening to the, marching to the drum of Flash, Gordon, and Buck Rogers, then you're going to love this novel. It is pure sci-fi at its finest. So, from all of us here, I'm Josh. I'm Kevin. I'm Mari. Make sure to check us out on all social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and all your podcast aggregators. Drop us a like uh, and rate and review on iTunes. We love to hear from people. Make sure to support your local libraries, comic book stores, all small-owned businesses, black-owned businesses, mom-and-pop shops that are keeping the economy going because we all still need to keep pulling together as we move forward into 2021 in a couple of months. This pandemic pandemic is still a part of our lives and we need to keep together to keep going and remember be true to the nerd that is in you till next time folks same nerd time same nerd channel bye for now everyone